Before we start today's teaching, I need to ask a favor of you. If you have walked with me through the entire Bible from Genesis to now Revelation, I want to hear from you. Would you please go to our URL at icejusa.org forward slash I walked. Let me know what it did in your life, what you learned, how you were blessed by it. And in return, we're going to send you a free resource. So please let me hear from you today. Thank you. Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michael's 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've been discussing that Roman pagan context of some of the epistles in the New Testament. And today, we're now coming to the end of our New Testament this week and next week, and we're returning to the Hebraic context as we discuss two books written specifically to the Jewish believers in Jesus of the early church. Even the book of Revelation is written in a very Jewish writing style, full of Old Testament imagery. So stick with me. Now, I want to welcome everyone to This is Walk Through the Bible, week 52. Yes, there is one more week after this. We're going to end next week. But uh, we are now we've been reading from the Daily Bible to this week, the dates of December 24th through the 30th, or page numbers 1646 to 1683. So let's do a little review. The last couple of weeks, we talked about the epistles in the New Testament written to the churches throughout the Roman Empire. These churches had two influences. One was a Jewish influence, and some that were known as Judaizers or were teaching that the Gentiles had to convert to Judaism in order to be Christians. And so the epistles do deal with that issue. But then there were a lot of issues coming into the early church from the Roman pagan context and society around it. So we've been talking about those problems over the last couple of weeks. I'm kind of happy to be returning now back to the Hebraic context and the Old Testament context uh, through two books that were written specifically to Jewish believers in Jesus. I just want to repeat something I've already said about the law, but there's so much misunderstanding about the law. A lot of churches teach the law was bad, grace is good. And we have to understand the role of the law. The law was not bad. It's just the law could not save. The law could not make us righteous, but it played a part. It taught us about the character of God, and it taught us how to please God and how to walk in fellowship with Him. Uh, But it took the death of Jesus on the tree to actually pay the price for our sins and to bring salvation. So the Gentile world was told through the epistles in the New Testament that you do not have to become Jewish in order to be a follower of Christ. You can come straight through the door by faith in Christ and be a part of the family. 
But then we discussed uh, how that there were, though, Jewish believers in Jesus that were fully observant of the law because they understood they weren't doing it for salvation or for righteousness' sake. They did it because they were a part of the people of Israel, and the law of Moses was given as a part of their covenant with God. It was laws put on them as a nation. These laws, when they obeyed them, reflected who they were and who their God was and the calling that he had on them as a people. So with that little background, this week we're going to discuss two different books. One is the book of James. Now, the book of James was probably one of the first letters, one of the first epistles in the New Testament ever written. We're covering it now after we've read all of Paul's writings simply because the uh, compiler of the Daily Bible sought to keep us focused on the story of Paul and to go through his life and his writings. And now uh, we're looking at the book of James, but it's believed that James was one of the very first books written, that it was even written before the uh, Jerusalem Church Council that we read about in Acts 15. James was probably written by Yaakov, or we would say in English, Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus, and he became the leader of the Messianic Church there out of Jerusalem. He led that Acts 15 council. He is the one that helped the leadership of the church to make that decision that, no, the Gentiles do not have to convert to Judaism, be circumcised, and come under the law in order to follow Jesus. So we believe that's who the writer of the book of James is. And in English, they called his name James, but in Hebrew, it would have been Yaakov, or what we would say is Jacob. Now, um, the book is a series of answers to questions that the Messianics were asking and that they needed guidance on. So as you're reading through the book of James, you might be able to pick out where he's actually responding to some questions that have been uh, asked and some uh, problems that have been uh, presented there to the leadership in Jerusalem. Um, I just want to make comments on one thing that you're going to find in the book of James, which shows that we're back in our Hebraic culture. And once again, it is that tension between following the law, obeying the law that we know God gave the Jewish people, and in not having to obey that law and walking in the freedom of Christ. And so, in as I've already explained, the law was not given to Gentiles. There was no need for the Gentiles to come under the law when they came into the church. Um, but there's a tendency then in the church throughout all of history, actually, because of a more Greek approach to the world that we compartmentalize uh, a Greco-Roman view is to compartmentalize, and so uh, what is sacred is sacred, and what's secular is secular. And so if we go to church and we, we believe the right thing, 
it's not so important what we do because we don't have to come under the law. But it is important what we do. And that is where James here, coming from that Hebraic perspective, is telling them, well, it's great that you have faith. That's how you enter in. But faith without works is dead. So we read it first in James chapter 2, verse 26. He said here, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And earlier in his book, in the first chapter, the 27th verse, he said it this way, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So if you want a definition of pure Christianity, he says here, pure religion that pleases the Father is one that does this. It looks after the orphans and the widows. And it keeps oneself from being polluted by the world. So it is important what we do. Faith without works is dead. And we have to somehow come to terms with this contradiction that we are saved through faith, not by works. But faith without works is a dead faith. So wrap, while you're wrapping your head around that, let me just make a few comments. God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, revealed himself to his people, not with a book that said, okay, here, I am this, I'm that, I'm, I'm kind, I'm gentle, I'm loving, I'm forgiving, I'm righteous, I'm holy. You know, that's the way. He revealed himself to his people through his acts. So he said, I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. I am the God that healeth all your diseases. I am the God, your provider. And as you study the names of God, he's describing himself through his actions. That is the Hebrew God that we serve. Jesus also revealed himself by his actions. And if you'll remember at one point, the um, John the Baptist is in prison. It looks like it's getting really bad for him. And he sends messengers back to, Ju to Jesus and says, Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one that I've been telling everybody that you are? And Jesus didn't say, Yes, I am this and I am that. And this is the definition of who I am. He said, Go back and tell John what you've seen me do and the acts that I have performed. So Jesus was also revealing who he was by what he did. And when you study the life of Jesus, you're going to see that he did things very intentionally to demonstrate who he was, which was demonstrating the Father to the people. And so you and I also demonstrate to the world who we are by the way we live, the way we talk, the way we care for people or don't care for people. Are we self-centered? Are we caring? Are we generous? 
By what we do, we're revealing who we really are. I'm sorry. I can sit here and tell you all day long, oh, I'm wonderful. <laughs> you know, I'm very holy and I'm very this and I'm very that. But at the end of the day, if I don't demonstrate that, you know it's not true. It's just words. So faith without works is dead. And the Hebraic mindset is really essential here, that your works demonstrate who you are and are very, very crucial, even if you don't need to obey the law for salvation. You need to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit in you is making you generous, caring, loving, and you are reflecting the Holy Spirit, which is the very nature of God that has been planted in your life. So it's a very uh, Hebraic letter, the, the letter of James, and he talks about the power of the tongue, the power of what you do, the power of what you say. And I'll just throw out here uh, as we go to the next book, but, um, you know, I'm very distressed over the um, deterioration of our language these days. And even Christians are entertaining really terrible words, curse words, vocabulary, because the world around us is saying these words like every other word is a bad word. And the more you hear it, the more it starts coming out of you. And I see this happening. We are tolerating such a deterioration in our language. So think about that when you're reading through the book of James this week. The other book we want to talk about that reflects, once again, the very Hebraic nature of Christianity, of our God, of Jesus, of what this is all about, is the book of Hebrews. Now, we do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the title of the book is very clear that it was written to the Hebrews. And it, many times when you're reading through Hebrews, you'll see that it talks about we in a plural. So it may have been some kind of a, a compendium, a letter from the leadership there in uh, Jerusalem to the Jewish believers in Jesus throughout the churches, throughout the Roman world. And um, as you're reading through it, once again, try to pick out, it seems like there were some very serious questions that were being asked. Seems like the book of Hebrews was written a little bit later than, than James was. And there are some very serious questions that these Jewish believers in Jesus have because now it's probably been maybe 30 years, maybe almost 40 years since the death of Jesus. These Jewish believers have been interacting with the mainstream Jewish leaders, with the rabbis who have argued with them over things, who have questioned things that they're believing, and so they have doubts. And as you're reading through the book of Hebrews, you can probably pick out different subjects that they're asking about, and the leadership here feels the need to respond to and to answer. We know that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD. Why? Because it speaks about the whole temple and the temple sacrificial system 
in present tense, as though it's happening now. As of 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, but the temple was destroyed, and the whole sacrificial system there came to an end. So if it had been written after that, it would have spoken of those things in the past tense, but it doesn't. So it was probably written sometimes in the mid uh, to late 60s. It appears that there was a falling away of early Jewish believers in Jesus. And what had begun with great enthusiasm that now they were experiencing a falling out of the faith and fewer numbers. Um, The followers of Jesus seemed to have been feeling a lot of pressure as outcasts amongst their countrymen. And they faced mounting pressure to reconsider the claims of the messianic credentials of Jesus to be able to respond to these things, to the non-Messianic community. Um, There needed a record concerning Jesus to be able to stand up to these questions. Some of the respected leaders were wavering, maybe even defecting from the group, and they were a little demoralized and lacking direction. And the book seeks to step in and kind of bring direction and bring encouragement. So I'll just give you one example that you'll find in the book of Hebrews. It seems like that there were um, rabbinic um, um, confront—not confrontations, rejection of Jesus as a priestly figure, as a high priest that brought about this sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the world. And the argument was that Jesus was not of the lineage of Aaron. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't even of the lineage of the priesthood. So how could he be? And so the book of Hebrews comes and says, because he is of the lineage of Melchizedek. And they respond to this accusation. So as you're reading through the book of Hebrews, pick out these various subjects and you'll begin to piece together Uh, what they were being told, what they were hearing, what they were questioning. Now that brings us to our third book this week and the final book of the whole Bible, the book of Revelation. Now you may be surprised when you hear me say this, but the book of Revelation is also a very Jewish book. We read it and we look at all this symbolism and we start to get lost in it. I know. But it's written in a very common Jewish writing style of the time. And that is called the apocalyptic style. And apocalypse or apocalypsis in Greek is the word for revelation. It does not mean anything ominous. It doesn't mean end times. It doesn't mean the end of the world. The original world, apocalypsis, just means a revelation. It means to reveal something that is hidden. And so the apocalyptic style of writing, which lasted for roughly about 500 years, it served the Jewish community under these major empires that they were living under, and they were suffering under these major empires, and they could not speak directly against these empires. So, starting with the Babylonians, and then the Persians, 
And then the Greeks, boy, the Greeks, that was a bad experience. And then here come the Romans, and that was a terrible experience. So they came up with a writing style that used a lot of symbolism so that the person of the Hebrew nation, and um, in this case of the early church, would understand the symbolism. They would understand what was being conveyed. But if one of the officials or governors or somebody got a hold of this writing and read it, they would be clueless that it was talking about the emperor or that empire or that pagan uh, society. They wouldn't understand uh, what it was talking about. So that was the use of the apocalyptic writing style. And there were uh, a number of books in this writing style that became um, a part of the Apocrypha, which are some books that were written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of those books are included in the Catholic Bible, and they were included in the Hebrew Bible back at the time of Jesus, but they were not included in the Protestant Bible. So uh, most of you listening to this, you are uh, Protestant, you're probably evangelical. In your Bible, you don't have any of those books. But there were some books, even quoted in the New Testament, they were of this writing style. Um, so the book of Revelation is the only book in our Bible that's really of this writing style. You could say uh, Daniel was a little bit in that style. Um, but in the New Testament, it's just the book of Revelation. Um, the book of Revelation also is a letter. So it's also an epistle, um, and it's also a prophecy. So it's a mixture of apocalyptic, the uh, epistolary, epistolary style and the prophetic style. It is a heavenly vision. It uh, spoke to the people at the time it was written. But it also went on to talk about future events. So it was also uh, something about the future. I want to read to you just the very first verse of a uh, few verses of the book to give an introduction to how to approach the book of Revelation. So it says here, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, what must soon take place. Verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And then down in verse 19, still of chapter 1, the uh, angel says to John, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So that is a summary of the book of Revelation. It's what John saw in a vision. It is what was taking place then, which is now, here in this verse, what is now, at that time, and what will take place after this time, what will take place later. So when um, you're reading through the, um, the book of Revelation, I want you to remember that it is very symbolic, first of all. So what John saw was a vision. 
So we don't know that John literally saw heaven and these things were literally taking place in heaven, or was it a vision that God allowed him to see these things to convey to him realities of what was happening in heaven? So are the angels really doing this? Are there really the trumpets being blown? Are there really vials being poured out? We don't know. We know John saw those things, and we know that they are full of meaning that we can take from them of what uh, was happening and what will be happening. Um, but is it literal or is it symbolic? Um, the other thing about the book of Revelation is that uh, it was very historical. So it was speaking to first century Christians about things and in ways that they would totally understand. So, um, and then of course it's futuristic, it's prophetic, it's about events surrounding the second coming of Jesus, which is still in the future. And the problem with reading through Revelation is we get a little confused as to, well, what is about the first century situation and what is futuristic? And that's where we get into different people have different interpretations and different theories. And then they come up with timetables and they chart it out how that they believe that it's going to happen based on what they've read here. But there's very large disagreements in these timetables. So you'll have people that are uh, premillennial and amillennial and postmillennial. And that's because of the nature of the way the book of Revelation is written. Um, you may read through it and be very convinced of a certain time sequence, but somebody else can read the same thing and have a different interpretation, a different time sequence. What's important here is that we uh, understand the very uh, Old Testament symbolism that's being used here, that these things are not all just like, um, it's not all futuristic. It's a very, very Jewish book using very, very Jewish symbols and terms and imagery from the Old Testament, from the, the Hebraic context, so that these early, especially the Jewish believers in Jesus, understood what it was talking about. Now, three of the most important Old Testament books that help prepare you for understanding Revelation are Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. There are a lot of themes that you find in those books that are continued then uh, in Revelation. Now, I just want to talk about three little picky things. You know how I like to pick out little things before I go to a major key that's really going to help you. So the first is uh, there in chapter 1, uh, verse 7, there is a translation issue I want to bring to your attention. I've actually mentioned it earlier in our walk through the Bible, but I'm going to repeat it now that we're here. Verse 7 says this, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, this verse is talking about the return of Jesus. And look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. 
even those who pierced him. And the translation of all the peoples on earth will mourn him, a better translation is all the tribes of the land. So this is very in keeping with Zechariah, where it says in Zechariah 10 that they would look upon him whom they had pierced and would mourn as for an only son. This is talking about the people of the land of Israel mourning. Not all the peoples of the earth are going to be mourning when they see the return of Jesus. It doesn't make sense. So that translation will help you. The second translation issue I want to uh, mention quickly is out of Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, where it talks about this synagogue of Satan. I want you to know that the Greek word here uh, used that's been translated synagogue means assembly. And in other scriptures in the New Testament, it is translated as assembly because it's talking about a Christian assembly. The same word can be used for a Christian assembly as for a Jewish assembly. Your translators here have used the word synagogue because it says that they are people that are uh, faking, they're pretending to be Jews when they're not. Well, that doesn't mean that it's a synagogue. That could be happening in the church. We've talked about this. People coming in and teaching Jewish law when they actually didn't know what they were talking about. So it could have been they were pretending to be Jewish believers in Jesus when they weren't. And so this synagogue of Satan makes it sound like, well, let me put it this way. Anti-Semites have used these verses and this translation to say that there, this is proof. There are evil Jews in the world. And here we're talking about they are of the synagogue of Satan. Well, it's a translation issue. It could have been translated assembly of Satan. It could be talking about a church that was so into false doctrine that it's being called here of Satan. We don't know. So um, I wish that the translators um, had stayed less biased here and just said assembly. It would have um, not been used so badly by anti-Semites for centuries against the Jewish people. Okay, one last point, and then I'm going to wrap all this up. You know how we talked uh, last week? We talked about the doctrine of the false doctrine of women dominating the men that was coming out of the pagan world and the the goddess cult of Diana there in Ephesus. And and if you didn't hear that, I recommend you go back and listen to that teaching. Um, but here I wanted to point out to you uh, a perfect example of that that was a much larger problem, not just in Timothy's church. So here in Revelation 2.20, um, actually 24 through 25, it talks about this woman who's teaching this false doctrine. Listen to it. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and by her teaching deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I will strike her followers, meaning with judgment. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, all who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned the so-called 
deep secrets of Satan, to you I say, hold on to what you have until I come. So this confirms exactly what I was telling you about last week. There were those teaching this deep secret knowledge, gnosis. Here it's called the deep secrets of Satan. Paul said they were doctrines of demons, and they were taught by women, and they were teaching a female superiority over men, and that it was the females that should be teaching, and they were teaching magic. It's all right here. You're tolerating this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. The cult of Diana was full of prophetesses that spoke on behalf of the goddess Diana and had authority over men. So this is a real confirmation here of what we discussed uh, last week. Okay, so let's move on. I'm going to wrap up. I want to give you a key to understanding what you're going to be reading this week in the book of Revelation. It is so easy to get lost, but this key that I'm going to give you is really going to help. You're going to be reading through the book of Revelation, and we have seven churches and then seven angels and seven trumpets and seven vials and seven this and seven that. And it's like all this wrath and judgments and plagues. And it's like, and we think it's all over. And then there's more. We're like, there's more. Let me give you the key. And I'm going to give you at the end a book that I recommend if you want to go deeper about this key. There is a pattern that has been detected in the book of Revelation uh, by a Jewish leader, a Jewish uh, believer in Jesus leader, messianic leader, that for me really helped unlock the book of Revelation. just so happens that his book is called Passover, the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. You know, the story of Passover, you have your people that are in bondage in Egypt under the evil ruler of Pharaoh, who has them in slavery, will not let them go. And so God raises up two prophets, Moses and Aaron, to go and to pronounce plagues and judgment over Egypt if they don't let his people go. During the plagues, which are poured out one after the other, after the other, God protects the Israelites down in Goshen, and they don't suffer from these plagues, and especially the last and final plague, which is one of the death of the firstborns. And God told them exactly what to do so that they would not suffer under this plague, and that was to kill a sacrificial lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. This was the death of the Passover lamb, and the plague just did not affect them at all. The Israelites then were allowed to leave, and they left. And then what happened? Pharaoh decides to go after them again. His heart is hardened again, and he pursues them all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. And that is where he meets his final defeat and his final demise. The Israelites are now free. They've crossed over on dry land. They are free to receive the covenant of God and to enter into the promised land and all that God has promised them.
you're going to see this same pattern in Revelation that God's people are on earth in bondage to evil, and there rises up this evil antichrist figure that is inspired and powered by Satan himself. He is so evil. And so God announces these plagues, and there's plague after plague, but God's people are sealed and marked by the Holy Spirit for protection. Now, there are martyrs. Don't get me wrong. It is a hard time, and there are martyrs. But finally, this Antichrist is defeated, and there is like an exodus of God's people, and he calls them up to be with him. And there's this thousand-year period where the there is the kingdom of God on earth, the reign of the Messiah on earth, where the nations come up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the God of Israel. It's a beautiful time. And at the end of it, what happens? The devil comes out one last time, full of wrath, to destroy it all, but instead he is destroyed forever and ever. It is over. And then the new heaven and new earth come down. The new Jerusalem we see coming down from heaven. God's people enter in to that eternal, beautiful rest in the promised land. Earth is now a part of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is now on earth, and it's heaven all at the same time. The people of God, or the city of Jerusalem, it's a. this is what we're all waiting for. And so when you understand this pattern in the Passover, you can begin to understand the pattern that we will relive in these last days. Why? Because God is the God of the Hebrews. He set these spiritual laws into operation. We see these cycles prophetically throughout history, and you're going to see it here in Revelation. So in today's show notes, we're going to put a link to this book. You can buy it on Amazon about the Passover key to the book of Revelation. Enjoy your reading. I'll see you back here next week for our final wrap-up. We're going to finish Revelation, and we're going to finish the Bible. So I can't wait. See you back here then. Until then, God bless. Hey there. I hope you've enjoyed the teaching so far during our walk through the Bible. We would like to ask for your help. If you've enjoyed it, if you've received from it, if you've learned something and you would like to bless others with the opportunity to be a part of these teachings, would you please go down below in today's show notes, follow the link there to make a donation. You know, it costs a lot of money for us to provide this teaching to you free of charge, but we've done so just wanting to bless you. I'd like to ask you now, would you bless others? make a donation so that we can get this teaching out to more people. We would appreciate it. We just appreciate your partnership with us in that way. God bless you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. 
Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.